recently I listened to an online course. I like to listen to things uh, on my computer, whether I'm doing chores or driving around. I'm always listening to stuff. And I listened to a course about American history. And one of the lectures was about Western expansion. And the professor spoke about settlers who traveled over the plains back in the day, right, when they were settling, moving across our country. And the plains are pretty desolate. And they would encounter the Rocky Mountains for the first time. And the sight for them was absolutely overwhelming. We actually have actual diaries of their stories of seeing the Rocky Mountains for the first time and their response. People cried. They broke down emotionally. Some people even fainted at the sight of the Rocky Mountains. Now, surely they knew of the Rocky Mountains before they had gone west, but it was nothing like seeing it in person, right? I think this principle is so true. We must see things with our own two eyes or it always kind of remains incomplete, whether it's a beautiful piece of scenery, whether it's a loved one that you maybe haven't seen in a while, even photographs or even FaceTime and Skype, as wonderful as they are and as as much as they kind of bridge the gap, wouldn't you say that it's always incomplete unless you can see it with your own two eyes, right? For me, I've wanted to do a cross-country trip. That's on my bucket list for the last few years. To go out west one day and to see things I've never seen before. To see the Rocky Mountains, to see the Grand Canyon and so forth. I don't, I'm tired of hearing people talk about it. And I can go online and see all the pictures. I want to see those things with my own eyes. The same holds true with God. Same holds true with God. It should be the longing of every believer to see God. Perhaps you've heard of that phrase before, the beatific vision. You ever heard of that phrase before, the beatific vision? It refers to the moment when one stands in the presence of God and beholds His glory at last. Now, obviously, no person can behold God in all of His glory because we're finite human beings, right? However, we will see God. We can't take him all in. Only God can do that. But we will see God and we will enjoy him as never before. In this lifetime, we know God exists, right? And we have come to know him and we learn from the word of God about who God is. And we have the indwelling Holy Spirit who teaches us who God is. But all of that pales the comparison to what lies in the future. 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says, For we now see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Friends, this is what we're waiting for. 
similar to those early settlers, were crossing the plains, if you will, of kind of desolate times, and we get a glimpse maybe here and there, we're waiting for the day when we get to behold it all. Looking forward to that? Well, this hope of seeing God is not new. It runs throughout Scripture. In fact, one of the first people to express it was Job. And we're going to see it in the passage that we have before us today. One of the most famous passages in all of the book of Job. And for Job, seeing God was not only just the longing of his heart, this unfulfilled desire that he wanted to have come to pass one day, but it also was the ultimate hope and the remedy for all of the suffering that he had gone through. Seeing God wasn't just experiencing him, but it was also going to be the means of bringing hope and healing to all of the suffering. And you know what, friends? That is what it should be in our lives as well. That day when we see God face to face. So we are, as you know, in the midst of our series on the book of Job. Today we're taking a big step forward. We're moving from Job chapter 5 all the way to Job chapter 19. So I invite you to turn there to Job chapter 19. And while you're doing I'm just going to briefly summarize what we're skipping over in the meantime, these chapters, okay? So Job, uh, in these chapters between 15 and 19, him and his friends, they continue their debate that they're having. And his friends believe that Job's suffering is proportional to his sin. They think that's just a lock-solid rule that you suffer according to your sin. And so, since Job is suffering greatly, what does that mean? He must have sinned greatly. All right? And so that's their position. In reply, Job firmly and passionately insists that he is innocent. He knows he's a sinner, but he says that his suffering doesn't match up with what he has done. Now, of course, we know, because we've been given heaven's vantage point, that Job is not being punished for his sin, right? We know that there is more that is going on there. How God allowed Satan to harm Job because he thought that Job would curse God. But we know that Satan was wrong. Job hasn't cursed God. And so as the dialogue continues, these friends go back and forth. And it's interesting, as you have been reading along there, their the vehemence of the friends increases that Job, no, you are guilty. You are guilty, Job. They increase their, their dialogue toward him, their vitriol toward him. And Job, in response, increases his determination to show that he is innocent. So it's kind of escalating at this point. Now, in these, oh, by the way, by the way, you might have not picked up on this in your reading there, but... It's sometimes said that Job often was very cold and shivered a lot at night. Do you know why that's the case? Because he had terrible comforters. That's the obligatory... Oh, that was a delayed reaction there. That's the obligatory corny Job joke of the week, so... Had to get it out of my system there. There's, there's probably another one coming. What's that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so in these speeches now, you'll see something that's very interesting. As Job is pouring his heart out, primarily he does so by means of lament. 
Remember we talked about what a lament is, where you're going through a difficult time, you pour out your anger, your grief, your frustration with God. We saw an example of that in Job chapter 3. Job also, in addition to lament, he also cries for justice. So you could say he's worried about lament, lamentation, and litigation. He's trying to, in a sense, plead his case before God. Now Job is smart enough to know that Job, excuse me, that God knows everything and God is all-powerful. He doesn't have much of a chance in winning his court case against God. And so this, the, this insight starts percolating in his mind about a third party who will stand for Job. He uses different titles for the third party, but it's speaking of the same person. Job chapter 9, verse 32 to 33 says, For he, speaking of God, is not a man as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. So Job knows he can't summon God to court, right? And he doesn't have, so and he, right now he recognizes, I don't have a third party, an arbiter, who might somehow bring us together. Then in chapter 16, verses 19 to 20, Job says, Even now, behold, my witness is in heaven, and he who testifies for me is on high. My friends scorn me, my eye pours out tears to God, that he would argue the case of a man with God, as a son of man does with his neighbor. Do you see the progression in his thought there? He, want, he went from kind of yearning from a, a third party to intervene to now having a hope and a realization that he had that. That there's a witness in heaven who's going to testify on his behalf. And the text doesn't say so, but I think the implication is that this witness, this arbiter, is at least supernatural, if not divine. Because he resides in heaven and Job thinks that he actually might win the case with God. Keep that in mind. Because that's going to come up as we go through our passage. Really wonderful stuff that we see here in Job. Now, everybody there, Job 19. I'm going to skip ahead to verse 23, but just so you guys know what was going on in these verses beforehand in Job 19. In verses 1 to 6, Job rebukes his friends about their lack of compassion and so forth. In verses 7 to 12, Job discusses God's treatment of him. He, he asserts that God has come against him as an enemy, almost using warfare imagery. And then in verses 13 to 20, Job speaks about how people don't regard him with honor like they used to. And then in verses 21 to 22, Job says, look guys, just leave me alone. <laughs> Had enough, you know. So... That's where we're going to pick up in verses 23 to 27. That's our passage today. And again, we're going to see how Job returns to a third party, this time who he's going to call his Redeemer. So verses 23, i got to find it myself. Hold on here. Verses 23 to 24, Job expresses his wish here about having his words recorded. He says, "'Oh, that my words were written.'" Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. So Job just mentions two methods of writing there in the ancient Near East, and he wants his words recorded because he hopes one day that he will be vindicated. I think it's kind of neat to see how his wish was fulfilled, don't you? That he wished this, and here we are, thousands of years later, reading what Job wanted to be recorded. And in verse 25, though, 
Job says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. So Job gives the reason why he wanted these words recorded, or for wanting his words recorded. His Redeemer lives. So what's a Redeemer? What is a Redeemer? Well, the Hebrew word there, goel, is used in the Old Testament for someone who had the right and the responsibility to vindicate a family member. For example, in the Old Testament book of Ruth, you guys remember that story? There was the story of Boaz, who was a redeemer. He was a redeemer. He assumed the role of redeemer with his relative Naomi, who was widowed, and she was worried about losing her inheritance in the promised land, and you know that meant everything to Old Testament Israelites. And so Boaz stood in the role of a redeemer by marrying her daughter-in-law, Ruth, thus preserving the line and the family inheritance. So a redeemer is someone who would stand in the gap and be someone who would vindicate a close friend or family member, or just family member. So this title, redeemer, is also applied to God. It's also applied to God in the Old Testament, where he delivers individuals from difficult situations, and most of all, he delivers the nation of Israel from their bondage to Egypt and when they were cast out in exile. For example, Isaiah 44, 6 says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer. So going back to Job, this Redeemer is someone who is going to defend Job before God to show that he is indeed innocent. And he's going to stand opposite of Satan. Remember back in chapter 1, how in the heavenly council, Satan was opposing Job by accusing him falsely. So this Redeemer is going to stand opposite of Satan. And Job is confident because his Redeemer lives. He doesn't have to worry about his Redeemer dying one day or not being present when the court case was there. And as he says there, the Redeemer is going to stand at the last day. I think that refers to the end of time. This Redeemer is going to be there. So Job's getting excited about this. His Redeemer is going to live. And then in verse 26 to 27, he continues by saying, And after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. My heart faints within me. So Job, he packs a lot here in a little bit of space, so track with me. He begins by discussing his skin being destroyed. I think he's talking about his death. So after his death, notice what he says, in my flesh I shall, I shall see God. Now here's a translation issue. In the Hebrew, it can mean either in my flesh or without my flesh. If it is in my flesh, Job is saying, one day when my flesh is back on me, speaking of the resurrection, then I'm going to see God. If it means without my flesh, he's saying, when I die and immediately go to be with the Lord, what theologians call the intermediate state, then I'm going to see God. I think it's the resurrection body that he's talking about because he speaks of the last day. But regardless, the point is he's going to see God face to face. That's his great hope. Do you see how three times he says that? I'm going to see God. I'm going to see God. I'm going to see God. That's what he wanted. That was was so overwhelming to him. In fact, it was so overwhelming that he basically says, what, my heart's going to faint. 
That's how wonderful the thought was. By the way, did you notice how Redeemer and God seem to be the same person in the passage? Did you get that? So he's kind of clarifying. There's this third party. He's my Redeemer and he's God. What's going on, Job? How do you know all that stuff? We'll get to that in a second. Before I do, I want to discuss an important question. How does Job's hope here square with his earlier pessimism about the afterlife? You guys have been reading along in Job, right? Remember we said we need to read along so that when we come in here on Sundays we'll really get the most out of these sermons? So, assuming you've been reading along in Job, you've noticed a few times where Job speaks with kind of this pessimism about the afterlife, but now he has a change of tune. In Job chapter 10, verses 20 to 22, Job said, Are not my days few? Then cease and leave me alone, that I might find a little cheer before I go, and I shall not return to the land of darkness and deep shadow, the land of gloom like thick darkness, like deep shadows without any order, where light is as thick darkness. So let's talk about this for a second. I want us to understand a little bit better. What is Job, what's going on here? How do we put this together? Well, to begin with, I would say Job's expression, some of the things that he says here, are just expressions of raw emotion, right? And expressions of sorrow rather than seasoned theological truths, right? He's still processing this incredible grief and sorrow that he's going through. And as we talked about when we went through this uh, passage about laments, when people are going through incredible suffering, even a godly believer, there are times when death sounds appealing, right? So Job was just expressing what was going on in his heart. I don't think he's giving, you know, these are didactic theological truths. He was just expressing his heart. And you also see, as you work through the book of Job, how he, as his mind starts clearing, I think, and as God maybe reveals things to him, he starts having a greater hope and assurance of what does lie for him in the future. And I would also add this. The Old Testament was not as clear and not as definitive about the afterlife as the New Testament. There is a definite rock-solid foundation of an afterlife, but the New Testament makes it clear. But let me just point out a couple texts. For example, Psalm 17:15 says, As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Daniel 12.2 speaks of the resurrection of the righteous and the unrighteous. If you want to write these down, Psalm 49.15, Psalm 73.24, Isaiah 26.19, they speak of the afterlife in the Old Testament. So there is this hope that you find in the Old Testament, but it becomes so much clearer with the arrival of Jesus. That's why Paul says in 2 Timothy 1.10, that Jesus, quote, abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Isn't that a great verse? I love this quote that B.B. Uh, Warfield, was a great Princeton theologian, he gives a quote about the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament and how to understand them. He says, The Old Testament may be likened to a chamber richly furnished but dimly lighted, the introduction of light brings into it nothing which was not in it before, but it brings out into clearer view much of what was in it 
but was only dimly or not at all perceived before. That's a great quote. What he's getting at there is the Old Testament, it's, the room is fully furnished. It's all there, but it needs more light. And that's what Jesus does. He brings that hope of the afterlife into greater light. And speaking of the connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament, friends, you should marvel at the amazing things God revealed to Job so far in advance of Christ, right? I mean, this is like 2,000 years before Jesus steps on the scene, and these things that Job is talking about are amazing. And did you know that Scripture regards Job as a prophet? James 5, 9, and 10 says of Job, As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So did you get that? Job is a prophet. Now, he's not a prophet in the kind of official sense that you find in the Old Testament of someone who held a regular office, who spoke on behalf of the Lord, like Isaiah or Jeremiah. But the Scriptures also regard someone as a prophet who just reveals something about God. You see that with Abraham, David. They're called prophets. And I think Job, too, is a prophet. And that God is giving him this insight about things that lie ahead. Isn't that pretty cool? But you know what's even cooler? Is the fact that we now stand on the other side of the cross. And we have all these pieces put together on the table for us. We should really appreciate that sometimes. Because you see, these Old Testament prophets, they really searched and inquired about these things. They wanted to understand what all this meant. But at the time, they couldn't because God had not revealed it to them. I love what 1 Peter 10 to 12 says, concerning this salvation, speaking about our salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquired what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. And the things that have now been announced to, to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels long to look. So friend, when you hold your Bible, I hope you realize that Job and Isaiah and these other guys who were prophesying, they were doing it for you. They wanted you to know these things. They didn't quite get it all, but now we have it because of Christ and the Holy Spirit teaching these things. Amen? That's a blessing. And it just shows how amazing the Bible is, right? So amazing. And that leads to the conclusion here, Jesus and the hope of Job. Jesus and the hope of Job. You know, Jesus comes along and he teaches that the Old Testament ultimately points to him. John 5, 39, he says, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness about me. So Job's really talking about Jesus and how this was going to come one day. And let me point out three things that are so encouraging this morning. First, Jesus is our Redeemer. Job spoke about this third party, the arbiter, the witness, the Redeemer. Friends, Jesus is that person. He's the one who stands between God and man because he himself is God and man. He perfectly fulfills that role. I love 1 Timothy 2.5. It says, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, 
the man Christ Jesus. Jesus is not only uniquely qualified for that role because he is God and man, but he also carried it out by going to the cross, didn't he? The thing that divides us between us and God is sin. And Jesus, he came and he died on the cross to break the power and the penalty of sin. He endured the wrath of God for our sins so that we may not experience condemnation and judgment. Ephesians 1.7 says, In Christ we have, what? Redemption. Redeemer, right? Through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Titus 2.14 says that Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. And this salvation that we have isn't just about conversion where you become a Christian. That's foundational and essential. But do you know that it keeps going on? It keeps going on. Praise God. I need it. You need it because we need continual salvation. We need someone who's going to continually apply what he did, Jesus, his redemption. He continually applies it to you and I so that we're continually washed and forgiven of the ongoing sins that you and I do. 1 John 2.1 says, If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And so when you sin, maybe no matter how bad of a sin you did as a Christian, Jesus applies that blood that he sacrificed on your behalf so that you are washed clean. The devil has no say-so anymore because you have been washed clean. Jesus is our advocate. The book of Hebrews comes along and it calls Jesus our great high priest who continually intercedes for us to the very last day because he lives forever. Hebrews 7, 23-25 says, The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he who holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Friend, you can have an assurance of salvation not because there's anything special about you but because we have a redeemer, an interceder, an intercessor, excuse me, who eternally lives to apply what he has done to your life so that God sees spotless and blameless. We should praise God for that, shouldn't we? Praise God that this redeemer lives. Second, Jesus will give resurrection bodies. Man, Job didn't have much to look at when he was looking at his body. He saw sores all over him, and he was just wasting away. He knew he was going to die, and so consequently, Job hoped for more. But a lot of people hope for afterlife. How in the world could you have any assurance of it unless someone actually came back from the dead, right? And that's what Jesus did. He died and he rose again. He's the guarantee that not only is there life after death, but he's going to come one day and give resurrection bodies to his people. Bodies that are never going to get sick. Bodies that are never going to get old. And I know people are talking about someone getting really old today. <laughs> Me. Getting really old. But a body that will never get old. And a body that will never excuse me, will function with great power. Not just the same body, but a body that is filled with power. 
Philippians 3.20-21 says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His, glory, like His glorious body. Friends, because of Jesus, you can have your fear of death taken away. I know before I was a Christian, I had this fear of dying, especially at like a, a younger age. But, you know, I just, I, I tried to take care of myself, you know, even, even before Angela came along and organic food started coming into our life. I, I, I tried to take reasonable care of myself, but I always realized that there are people who take care of themselves and they still die at a very young age. And that thought used to scare me a lot. Maybe somebody's sitting in that boat here today. But I know when I became a Christian, God just took away that fear. It wasn't something I manufactured in my own. It was just trusting the promises of God that he who had risen again would be faithful to his promise to rise all his people in the same fashion. And then thirdly, Jesus will return to the earth. Job wanted just to see God. He wanted to see God. Well, Scripture teaches that Jesus is going to return one day visibly, personally, to the earth. To use Job's language, at the, remember how Job said, at the last day he will stand on the earth? Well, Jesus is going to stand on the earth, and we're going to see him in his glory. 1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Friends, do you realize that the great sight of seeing the Lord Jesus will help you to overcome all of the sufferings of this life? Just that sight in and of itself will be enough. That's how great it's going to be. That's how glorious it's going to be. I love what Revelation talks about in Revelation 21 when John has this vision of heaven coming to earth and God dwelling with us in our presence. He says these amazing words, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have gone away. Friends, in his presence, once we have that day of seeing God... All suffering is going to be gone. Do you believe the promises of God? Do you believe a God who can make a universe out of nothing, a God who can rise from the, again, rise from the dead again, is able to take away all your suffering? That's what he's going to do. And if you long for that one day, friends, you're not going to be disappointed. Let me ask you. Do you see your need for a redeemer? That third party, someone who's going to pay for your sins and intercede with God. Jesus is the redeemer. Do you want eternal life instead of a fear of death and of condemnation? Jesus is the one who will give resurrection bodies one day. Do you want to have all your suffering taken away by that glorious side of seeing God? God is so wonderful that he offers that promise to anyone who will say yes to Christ. Jesus is where we find our hope.
John 5, 24, Jesus says these words, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but he has passed from death to life. What a Savior. And he's offering that promise to you today. Say yes to Christ. Place your faith and trust in him. You will never be disappointed. You won't be disappointed in this life and in that deep hunger and longing that we all have in our hearts of seeing God and having all that suffering taken away one day, you will find it fulfilled when you look and behold our great Redeemer who lives. Let us pray. Lord, we echo what the prophet Job expressed thousands of years ago, that longing and that desire to see you, to have no more sin, to have no more doubt. Lord, this is the great hope of your people. And Lord, those shadows, those whispers that you gave to Job Many years ago, amazing as they were, we know that that is all they were. They were just shadows. They waited for the substance to come. And that is our Lord Jesus. Lord, I pray for folks here today who might be going through various things in their lives where they're suffering or maybe it occurred in the past. Lord, may they try to clear aside those things in their minds. Be reminded, as Job was, that my Redeemer lives, and that, Lord, we shall see you at the last day. And, Lord, we can trust that regardless of the pain and suffering, deep and as hurtful as it might be, Lord, when we see you, you will truly wipe away every tear and take away every bit of sorrow. Lord, if there's someone here today who's never placed their faith and trust in you, Lord, may they believe this word that has been given today, that gospel good news. May they turn from their sin, realize that indeed all of us are sinners, but that you love us so much that Jesus came to die to be our Redeemer. May they call you my Redeemer today. Lord, we love you and we praise you. And it's in the precious name of that Redeemer that we pray. Amen.